Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hey, everyone. This is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the OIS Podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Louis Pasquale. He is the Director of Glaucoma Service and the Director of Telemedicine at Massachusetts Eye and Ear. But we're going to talk a bit today about a study he was working on with Inovia Inc., which uh, tested its piezo print technology to deliver latanoprost. It was a small study, but uh, it showed some promising results, and Dr. Pasquale will uh, will get into that. He'll also talk about his uh, path into ophthalmology and his unique interest in, in glaucoma and what he sees for telemedicine. All very important areas. Uh, I didn't have as much time with him as I would have liked, but uh, I know you'll enjoy this conversation. Before I let you go, though, I did want to remind you that OIS at AAO is happening on October 25th. This is the 10th OIS at AAO, and we're going to celebrate. You should join us at the OISX Gala the night before. We're getting a great response from OIS attendees, so uh, you might want to register as soon as you're able to. So go to OIS.net to sign up for OIS at AAO, and uh, we'll hope to see you in Chicago at OIS at AAO and the OISX Gala. Now let's get into this conversation with Dr. Louis Pasquale. Well, Dr. Lewis Pasquale, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. Thanks. Great. I, I can't wait to talk about the Inovia trial, but uh, I do like to find out a little bit about our guests and, and specifically how they found their way into ophthalmology. What uh, What was your path? Oh, Tom, thanks for that question. It's really interesting. Uh, originally, I didn't even understand what ophthalmology was uh, in <laughs> medical school, and uh, I certainly was thinking I was going to go into internal medicine. Uh, and then during my surgical subspecialties, this seemed to be reinforced as uh, general surgery just didn't look like it was for me. Uh, then I got to the surgical subspecialties and ophthalmology was sort of like a breath of fresh air. Uh, I remember the the first patient that, that I saw uh, had an elevated intraocular pressure of 35 and had an iris uh, melanoma, and, and I asked the attending, like, you could get cancer in the eye? And he said, oh, yes. Uh, and, and I was like, wow, that, that's, that's really interesting. And then the next patient came in, I just couldn't believe this, and uh, I had uh, papilledema. And so I said, so what did the CAT scan show? What kind of brain tumor did this patient have? They said, oh, no, this patient doesn't have a brain tumor. This is pseudotumor cerebri. And I said, what? How could you have elevated pressure in the brain and no tumor? And they said, well, if you think this is all interesting, tonight there's going to be a talk at the New York Academy of Medicine. And uh, Dr. Henkind is going to be there. And Dr. Jacobiak is going to be there. You'll find it interesting. So I went, and there was these two brilliant men going back and forth about different eye tumors and and I said, that's it. I'm in not in internal medicine anymore. And that's really how I got into it. Wow. That's funny how, uh, how life just leads you, leads you to that, uh, that fork in the road. What was it about, uh, about general surgery that wasn't, uh, wasn't for you? Well, I, I, I just felt the, the people weren't happy. Uh, I mean, let's face it, we all work really hard. Uh, and I just, I just saw people working hard and not being happy about it. Uh, and, uh, ophthalmology people worked hard, but they were really, they were, they loved what they did. Uh, and, and that, 
maybe it was the role models that I was exposed to uh, that that uh, allowed me to see that part of it. And so uh, that that's how I gravitated to ophthalmology. You know, that's a great point. I have to say, the to everyone, every ophthalmologist I've talked to has generally been a, been a good natured soul, and and people seem happy at our ophthalmology innovation summits. I'm assuming it's because we put on such a fantastic event, but you might just be uh, jovial people overall. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I wanted to uh, just find out a bit more about what your interests are. I know you've uh, you've got a strong interest in glaucoma. We're going to get into that in a second. But you're also uh, a big supporter of in uh, a leader of the ophthalmology telemedicine program. What? Uh, how did you find telemedicine uh, to to be of interest to you? Well, uh, I got exposed to it at the VA. Uh, I just couldn't believe that it would be possible uh, to screen for any eye disease uh, by just looking at pictures uh, of the retina. Uh, but I, I was sold when I saw the way the program ran. Uh, I, I was very impressed with the fact that, uh, you know, it's, it's that old adage that uh, a picture is worth a thousand words. And, you know, when we examine patients, they're a little bit wiggly and they don't like the light and they're moving around. And, you know, we develop a skill set to get around that, to see stuff. But but when you have a picture, you know, that's set in stone and it can be analyzed in many different ways uh, and it can be leveraged to gain additional information about the patient. And uh, this is particularly true in, in glaucoma. And so uh, I really felt that uh, this was the wave of the future. Uh, we have way too many patients uh, with these common complex diseases. And this uh, telemedicine approach offered us a, an ability to touch many patients and, and to be able to find those people that really needed to get into care. So is the technology there to allow telemedicine uh, to reach its full potential? Uh, are you seeing the, a change in how, medicine, how ophthalmology is practiced? Absolutely. Uh, I think that what's the other driver behind this is the, the use of artificial intelligence. So now the FDA has approved a automated reading uh, pr uh, algorithm to look at images for diabetic retinopathy and to accurately make a diagnosis. Uh, and so this is a game changer. Uh, so you could take an image and dip it in a dialogue box and then out spits an answer. You know, you get an answer. This patient has diabetic retinopathy or does not. And, uh, and so that's amazing. And that is now going to be possible for AMD. It's going to be possible for glaucoma. And there is actually a paper that, that shows that this is this proof of principle that this works for diabetes, uh, diabetic retinopathy, age-related macular degeneration, and glaucoma. More work needs to be done. Uh, but again, just having these automated systems uh, is really going to be powerful. And I think ophthalmology departments around the country are embracing the idea of telemedicine and artificial intelligence to to be able to do to reach out to patients and make accurate diagnoses uh, I'm very excited by this field and I'd have to think ophthalmology and, and perhaps dermatology are probably the two fields that are that are most suited for telemedicine uh, being supported by telemedicine given uh, how, how important 
the visuals are. And as you mentioned, the uh, IDX got their their uh, AI uh, system approved, so we're seeing some movement there as well. Yes, I totally agree. Excellent. So, well, it's nice. Thank you for agreeing with me. It's nice for me to make a point from that. <laughs> Ooh, I don't know where to go from here. Uh, let me, I, I want to now move into your interest in glaucoma, and that's going to lead into our conversation about Inovia. Uh, talk specifically, I was reading your bio, uh, and uh, you, you, a lot of it is, is dedicated to your interest in glaucoma. Uh, your, your, you talk a great deal about um, your interest in normal tension glaucoma, difficult surgical glaucoma, secondary glaucoma in children. And, uh, but I think one thing I found most interesting, we can cover the whole field, but one thing I found most interesting was uh, you're investigating how genes interact with the environment to cause glaucoma. That's something I hadn't heard before, and I might just be ignorant of it, but is, is that uh, a known cause of glaucoma, or is that something unique that, uh, that you're studying uh, uh, on your own? That's an interesting question, Tom, and it's a very complex question. And the reason why I study, I uh, devoted my uh, a good chunk of my scientific career to gene environment interactions in glaucoma was about a decade or so ago. I reasoned that despite the fact that everybody thought that many forms of glaucoma were genetic, the most common glaucoma, primary open angle glaucoma, we knew very little about what the genetic component of the disease was. And, and we all uh, ditto for the environment. We knew very little about how the environment uh, contributed to the disease. And in my naive way of thinking, I said, well, if it's not, you know, if there's no obvious genes emerging and there's no obvious environmental factors emerging, there must be some combination of genes and environment that is contributing to primary open angle glaucoma. And I am passionate about trying to find upstream factors that are contributing to this disease. We can't just treat it as a black box that uh, you say, well, well, it's it, your optic nerve is degenerating and it happens across the spectrum of intraocular pressures. There must be some set of biochemical events that are triggering this problem. And so I, I thought by looking at how genes and environment interact that I might be able to find solutions uh, that were upstream. And what I learned was that in all of medicine, actually, gene environment interactions are very difficult to find. But I believe we have found one, and, and it all involves nitric oxide signaling. And just finding one is so important because that means that the gene that is being influenced by environmental factors must be playing some very important role in the pathogenesis. And so of the of primary open angle glaucoma and uh, the gene that I'm talking about is nitric oxide synthase three. It is not a genome wide hit for primary open angle glaucoma. However, it is its relationship with glaucoma is modified by things like postmenopausal hormone use, uh, cigarette smoking, etc., which means that it must be playing an important role in the disease process. And as a result. People have spun off animal models where if you knock this gene out, intraocular pressure increases. And now we're beginning to see nitric oxide donators as uh, treatments for the disease. And I think you're going, we'll see more and more uh, of the importance of nitric oxide signaling in, in glaucoma in the future. And is, are there programs, uh, gene therapy programs targeting glaucoma yet? We've seen a, what AMD... We've obviously seen retinitis pigmentosa. Not yet. 
but they they may be coming. Uh, we have uh, learned uh, that there are at least 120 genes that influence the intraocular pressure level. Some of those genes could be leveraged uh, for gene therapy treatments for glaucoma. And that work is just just getting started, uh, but I think something will emerge uh, from that uh, field of research that will be a gene therapy uh, related approach to uh, treating glaucoma. Excellent. Well, that'll be exciting to watch. Now let's get into uh, the reason you're here today is, is to talk other than just to visit and then let us know about your stories to talk about Inovia's uh, recent uh, uh, clinical study, uh, EYNPG21. And uh, it's an early study of, uh, of Inovia's uh, drug delivery technology, the piezoprint technology deliver microdose medications. We had Inovia on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it was actually a couple of months ago, uh, to talk about the technology. So I think our listeners have a, a general sense of, of what it is, but we can certainly uh, give a, a quick synopsis. But tell us, uh, tell us a bit about how you became involved with Inovia and what potential you see in their technology. Sure, Tom. Um, it's so interesting. I mean, I knew when I was a resident that uh, conventional eye drop size was too large. And, you know, I, I was a resident in 1987 and 1990, and I, I came up with some harebrained solutions to the <laughs> problem <laughs> that I'm almost embarrassed to talk about. You can, but you can I know they, were, they weren't right. But like I would try just on my own, play around, take a sample bottle from the from the cabinet in the clinic and stick an IV catheter in there and see how it, it make a smaller drop size. But I realized that that wasn't the solution because there would be problems with sterility and you wouldn't be able to cap the bottle. Uh, so um, it just got shelved. You know, it just went back into the memory banks and said, yeah, you know, this is a big problem in glaucoma. There are a lot of big problems in glaucoma. Uh, and um, I, I and then uh, Sean and Chulif came along, uh, and uh, he uh, was talking about this technology of this piezoelectric device that was uh, gave precise amounts of drugs uh, that would target the ocular surface, the cornea in particular, for for uh, treating glaucoma and other conditions. And I uh, became a champion of this. I'm just lucky to have met him and uh, to be involved in this. Um, I mean, our patients struggle every day with taking eye drops. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with eye drops. I, I would like to point out that uh, we know that conventional dosing with latanoprost is neuroprotective. There was a beautiful study uh, that came out of out of England, uh, where they uh, randomized early open angle glaucoma patients to latanoprost versus placebo, and in two years' time, they showed that conventional therapy with latanoprost uh, resulted in preservation of visual field uh, in that two year time period. So conventional eye drops work, but we could do better, uh, and and that's what the microdosing uh, strategy is all about. Yeah, it always struck me as an inelegant way to deliver this these medicines. It's kind of like you can have a Pulitzer Prize winning newspaper, but at the end of the day, it still is delivered by a kid in a bike. <laughs> <laughs> Fix the kid in the bike, and you, and you might have even a better paper. But uh, 
and it, and and it's such a, a an intuitive design as well. I mean, if folks go to the to take a look at the, the product online, and it just it just makes so much sense. So let's talk a bit about the uh, about the study. Uh, there were thirty healthy volunteers uh, who were involved. Uh, each eye was was uh, treated. Define healthy for me. That they, they, they had no symptoms of, of anything, or what does that mean by a healthy volunteer? Yeah, they, they, they didn't have glaucoma or any ocular disease. And systemically, I think 99% of them were well. Um, there might have been one patient with systemic hypertension. Uh, they were young, healthy people. So what was measured to uh, demonstrate that, the, uh, that the, uh, the, the drug was being delivered? So they... Um, had a diurnal intraocular pressure before starting treatment. Mm -hmm. And then on day one, uh, they received uh, microdosing uh, with the conventional uh, latanoprost preparation, which is the 0.005%. Uh, and they, the uh, piezoelectric device was uh, designed to deliver eight microliters uh, of that uh, drop. Uh, they, the, t this, these drops were applied by, uh, a trained technician on day one and day two. And then, uh, diurnal intraocular pressure was rechecked, uh, uh, for two days starting after the first dose of, uh, the compound. And it demonstrated about a, uh, a five millimeter mercury reduction in intraocular pressure over that period of time. So that demonstrated that the, that dosing uh, was effective in lowering uh, intraocular pressure. And uh, while there was no uh, conventional therapy arm to the study, there, there is a great historical control uh, where there were a group of patients that uh, received uh, conventional dosing along the lines of the same strategy that I just outlined and that achieved the same lowering of intraocular pressure. So patients that were dosed with a conventional drop of latanoprost uh, would achieve the same five millimeter reduction uh, of intraocular pressure. Wow. And, and the, the study, according to the release, showed that 88% um, of the people administering self-administering the, the, the latanoprost were successful versus only 39% to 47% which it sounds like that's a, sort of an accepted industry standard through a, a conventional eyedropper. So that's uh, that's twice as successful. That's pretty impressive. Yes, yes, and it's not surprising. Uh, if, if I I think we all of us in ophthalmology may have thought about this at one time or another and say, well, let me just see how hard it is to put an eye drop in, and uh, you'd be surprised how difficult it is. And uh, we quote a study. Um, that uh, evaluated eye drop administration by inexperienced people after cataract surgery, which is uh, somewhat comparable to the population that was studied here. Uh, although, uh, admittedly, the patients in our study were younger and healthier, uh, but uh, it's the same thing. People have difficulty applying eye drops, uh, so it's not surprising. I know you need to go, Lewis, but I just wanted to ask, what is next uh, with Inovia? Is there another study we should know about? What's the next step? Absolutely, Tom. One of the things that I've emphasized with the company is that uh, while we say 
this sound that this microdosing approach sounds great. It makes sense. It does it. You know, it, it should it should be easier for the patients to do. And in the short term, it is. I think we have to demonstrate beyond a shadow of a doubt that chronic administration of this is going to be something that continues to be easy to do in the patient's hands. Uh, and because glaucoma is a uh, 24-7-365 disease and patients have to take medicines on a daily basis. And so we have to prove that this is translatable to chronic therapy use on a regular basis. Furthermore, uh, we're planning a phase three study of, uh, of microdosing of latanoprost and chronic angle closure glaucoma. Uh, this is going to be a multi-center trial uh, to demonstrate uh, efficacy of this approach to treating patients. And so we're excited to, to get that study rolling. Excellent. Well, we're excited to, uh, to follow your progress. And I appreciate your taking a few minutes uh, to tell your story and to update us on Inovia. So thanks for uh, being part of the podcast. Thanks, Tom. It was really a pleasure to speak with you and, and thank you for uh, uh, the fun beginning. And this has, been, uh, this has been a great half hour speaking with you. Thank you very much. Okay, well, that is a wrap. Thanks for joining us on the OIS podcast. Please uh, do me a favor, tell your friends about the podcast, let them know how much you enjoy it. Reach out to me. I am at MedTechTom on Twitter. You can email me, Tom at healthogy.com. We spell healthogy with the word health, followed by the letters E-G-Y. And healthogy is the producer of this podcast and many, many fine events, including OIS at AAO, which is happening on October 25th in Chicago. Go to OIS.net to register right now, and you'll be able to attend the OISX Gala. That is uh, happening on October 24th, the night before OIS at AAO. It's our way of thanking you for uh, your support over the past 10 years. And uh, we look forward to many, many years coming up. That's it, folks. See you in Chicago and tune in next week for another great tale of innovation on the OIS podcast.